ladies and gentlemen, what a what an interesting few weeks it has been. <laughs> in so many freaking ways. I can't describe it. But yeah, in other words, public enemies Chuck D. Bring the noise. Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you all had a good week in the circumstances. Hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, T Max uh, from last episode. If you haven't spun, go back and give it a spin. Highly recommend. Uh, one of my favourite chats over the past few years. Um, for more, re- re- for more, in more ways than one. One being that uh, he's the first uh, person I've. Uh, interviewed that has wasn't in music or or uh, or athletics. <laughs> I'm trying to think of others, right? I'm, uh, but yeah, most of them has been music based, and Tiana Madison, of course, is a bathly, right? Although, I don't know who else apart from musicians and her, so it's a bit, a bit random. But yeah, you know, talk to my first photographer is where I'm getting to, and uh, yeah, it was very fascinating. Um, a lot of uh connections i can find between himself and i very interesting person um and yeah anyway we're here for this episode what have we got for this episode uh we have an environment uh society life and film segments coming your way but before we begin email socials writing all that full show notes as well as the other podcasts under 5 epm and with that said let the beat drop Let's get to the show. In a week where more than 150 schools in England close after having a type of potentially dangerous concrete, uh, so everyone's been learning about the uh, acronym RAC. Uh, this week, and um, I literally don't, still don't know really what it's uh, what it uh, stands for. But I just keep seeing rack as if everyone knows what rack is. I'm just like, okay, wouldn't mind a big explainer in it. But yeah, sure, it's just all act like we know to know what rack is. Anyway, India successfully launched their first spacecraft into the sun or to the sun. Um, they also did a moon moon landing as well recently. So as you do. Uh, rebuild. Co- I don't, didn't realize we were still doing that in twenty first century. Like, I get it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, just uh, I don't know. Just seems a bit seems a bit redundant to do these days, is it not? But anyway, uh, I I don't run government. Rebuild cost for the town of Lahaina, uh, Hawaii, obviously, uh, estimated at five point five billion dollars. That's a that's a big bill. That's a big bill, and uh, hopefully they get it. Um, however is possible. Uh, Greece suffered torrential rain days after the largest recorded wildfires in Europe. And I link this weirdly enough to the to F1, where I recently saw something about uh, be, there being a, a Grand Prix in Greece, and there's already you know a place that has only been mapped out and it's not actually being built or anything, but they want to still green light it. Um, and I'm just like, 
Bruv, do you not see where Greece is at right now? They do not need an F1 race. <laughs> they do not need an F1 race. I don't know if that if that's a I don't know if that's a gen is that a genuine economy boost or you know, and just Hey man, torrential rain wildfires, do you really want to be in that? Uh, but anyway. Lastly, uh Enrique Tario, uh former leader of the Proud Boys, has been sentenced to twenty two years in prison. So let's begin uh, with uh, climate doomerism versus climate optimism. Um, I'm I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm a doom doomerism guy. Right. You know the times I've tried to talk about the environment on this pod, right? Is you know I've tried to keep it at some form of pace, right? It's probably not you know I'm not talking about it every week, but I feel like I talk about it. You know, once or twice a month, um, I try and, you know, subconsciously do that. Uh, but now consciously, I guess. And, you know, it's, it's something that I feel is important for obvious reasons to talk about. But I don't know whether my tone is always, you know, correct. Should, should I be more, um, should I be more optimistic? Um, but I found this um, article uh, via Fast Company. Don't, don't think I've actually done Fast Company yet. So there you go, that's the first um, by Brian Caitman's called Climate Doomerism is Dangerous, Climate Optimism is Even Worse. So, I don't know. Let's see, let's see what the argument is, because I don't think optimism is, a, you know, a bad thing. Um, you know, sometimes I think it's needed, right? You need that. You need some positive reinforcement um, for a lot of, you know, things that are existential, right? Um, it just, you know, it depends if you want to be just so so nihilistic you just like refuse to look at the look at the good in anything but i don't feel like i'm that um maybe a bit anarchist you know what i mean just seeing just watching shit burn i like i like the idea of it but do i actually want it probably not uh anyway let's jump into the article when we talk about climate change especially as it applies to the u.s and public policy the subject matter often seems to divide people into two strict opposing camps environmentalists and science deniers but those of us who acknowledge the very real risks posed by climate change aren't a monolith. Even among climate realists, there are a variety of viewpoints, and naturally discussions can quickly become heated. One of the clearest divisions I've observed in recent times is a stark divide between optimists and quote-unquote doomers, with nearly every pundit arguing that the former mindset is going to be more eff eff efficacious, is that how you say that word? I, f I forget, but yeah, efficacious, I think, um, in fighting, against, fighting climate change. The basic argument against climate pessimism makes intuitive sense. If we believe there's no hope, we won't try and will simply succumb to disaster. But I have to admit, it's not the climate doomers who scare me, it's the optimists. Of course, I'd like to believe everything is going to work out in the end, but I find that often people are so completely placated by that belief that they continue to live their lives unexamined and without regard for some of the future's darker possibilities. If we want to encourage the masses to make even small lifestyle changes like flying less or eating less meat, let alone vote for climate solutions that may come at the cost of higher taxes or other trade-offs, we need to make them understand that the stakes are very real, both on a daily individual basis and at higher levels. Eh, whatever is going to be fine is the kind of sentiment that inhabit, inhibits action. If people did grasp the urgency, I suspect we might see a big trend shift in one area, population. The decision of whether or not to have children is obviously a major one. 
with numerous contributing factors, one being the environment. Climate change is progression, and our chances of ever stopping it are subjects that should influence population growth from both an individual level, will this child have an adequate quality of life as the planet changes, and a macro one, will only the wealthy thrive on a warming planet? Optimists tend to reject Malthusian thinking, uh, which is based on the idea that, uh, that finite resources cannot support an exponentially growing population forever, instead advocating for more people instead of fewer. It's nice to think that more humans would mean more innovations and more chances to address the effects of climate change, but it's just not, it's just not supported by evidence. The rapid growth of our population over the past half, half century is correlated with 69% drop in wildlife populations, and the alteration of that at least 70% possibly up to 97% of the world's land. If history shows us anything, it's that a growing human population has always meant more planetary destruction, even as new and better technologies have been developed. There's little reason to think that this simply won't be the case going forward. Unfortunately, some prefer to ignore the grim reality for people. For example, I find, my, I find self-identifying pathological optimists like Elon Musk are the ones most excited to bring humans to other planets before we even figured out how to not wreck our own. This idea is bizarre for many reasons, one of which being that space colonization is supposedly an inevitable piece of our not-so-distant future. It's not really a problem if the Earth's resources are limited, the belief goes, because we'll soon be expanding to other planets anyway. Even if I were to accept that premise, this mindset it still terrifies me. We haven't yet figured out how to support the population we currently have on the planet we currently inhabit without causing irreparable damage to our environment and the other life forms with which we share it. Spreading the human population throughout the universe will only recreate these dire these issues on a massive universe-sized scale. To be fair, there is promising news from time to time. We learned that certain environmental intervention did in fact make a difference for the better, all we hear of a developing technology that might offer solutions we never previously thought possible. I'm all for acknowledging our precious few victories, but we have to keep them in perspective and not invest too much faith in long-shot ideas. Former, pres- former Vice President sorry, <laughs> uh, Al Gore highlighted the risks, excuse me, uh, the risks of unfounded optimism in a recent TED Talk, centered on possible climate solutions known as carbon dioxide removal (CDR) excuse me, and Direct Air Capture, DAC, which purport to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere once they've already been emitted. While a tempting idea, these technologies are pretty unfeasible at current, they don't work as well as we need them to, and they're financially unviable. <coughs> but the most sinister effects uh, of enthusiasm over CDR and DAC is the way oil companies seem to already be writing themselves free passes into in terms of air pollution. Gore quotes an oil CEO who called these technologies a license for the oil industry to continue to operate as usual indefinitely. If the oil industry had its way, we'd abandon all efforts to cut emissions based on the highly unrealistic belief that we can just suck the pollution out of the air later. Listen, I desperately, I desperately, as he said that in Australia, I desperately. I desperately hope that DAC and CDR eventually become legitimate life-saving solutions to the climate crisis, but to assume that they will and abandon other strategies as a result is nothing short of magical thinking. A recent Wall Street Journal piece calls the uh, calls climate change obsession a mental disorder. 
It's just one piece of an aggressive gaslighting campaign, a term that's overused but absolutely applicable in this context. For reasons ranging from economic to emotional, very legitimate fears are recast as not only inaccurate but also delusional, even a sign of insanity. If only that were tr- if only that were true. The reality is that catastrophic thinking is completely appropriate in this case. When the effects of climate change, not only the predicted effects but the ones we're already witnessing, are the definition of catastrophic. When climate optimists critique panic-stricken climate-related com- communications as irresponsible, they of course have a point. If we're paralyzed with fear and don't believe that better outcomes are possible, we set ourselves up to succumb to despair rather than take action. This will mean something different for everyone depending upon their interests and talents, organizing a protest, asking the school cafeterias, offering a vegan option, donating to an environmental charity, running for office, etc. All that matters is that we remain at least a little bit hopeful and do something. As Michael E. Mann, Professor and Director of the Center for Science Sustainability and Media at the University of Pennsylvania, that's a long ass title, recently tweeted, quote, concern, worry and alarm are for motivating doom and despair are not, unquote. The sentiment of doom is that there is no hope, and that's uh, neither true nor useful. Sober, honest discussion about the climate should inspire concern, worry, and alarm. Not enough to paralyze us, but enough to motivate us to take dramatic, unprecedented action. So yeah, I mean, it's a it, it's, it's it's a compromise, right? Um, I think the important addition uh, to make on that point, on making that overall point is that the best I think that um, we could do is to ha- is to give people that kind of um, give make them actually talk about it you know make them actually acknowledge it because I feel like there's a lot of people that just you know they just don't care you know they just don't they, they're not looking that far ahead in life you know what I mean they or ever live in like you know just straight up day to day, um, or just really stressed in life, and you know work is whatever, and you know just life is general stress. You don't really, you don't really think about you know the environment, climate change, you know, unless you have some, unless you're constantly talking about it. You either think about it or you're not. And I feel like there's a lot of people that just don't think about it. And I feel like the more people that think about it is the best the best baseline for anything Um, because if people are talking about it if people are thinking about it especially um, then it will just that's that's the that's the encouragement right it's like it's it's positive but it's silently positive right Um, and that won't be accounted for until the action comes in you know so it's it's a it's a it's a step-by-step thing for I feel for a lot of people um, and you know, I'm 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 constantly thinking about it. You know, every time I bin something, I just you know take a look at the package and see where it's supposed to go. And I'm just like, some of, some of these things are still not recyclable. It's, just, it's absurd. Like you know, crisp packets technically are not. Um, it's just it's, it's silly um, at this point. You know, and uh, yeah, so yeah, I constantly think about it. But for me, that next step is genuinely adding to the action and making that positive action um and some people are but the steps behind me so here's what it is uh but you know as long as my, my task i guess in in doing this and my bit you know trying to do it now and again um is because of that just so 
just to get you thinking about it at least at minimum So speaking of getting caught up in uh, life and where <laughs> and where uh, where you're at existentially, um, let's talk about this great title. Why is Britain so depressed? Um, you know, I've I've not I, I still to this, I still to this day I don't think I've ever had genuine depression. Um, you know, I've had I've had moments of mental breakdown, um, but that's all they were. They were moments. I've had prolonged um, I've had prolonged experiences of maybe like anxiety, but again, it's temporary. Doesn't it? It goes away after after a certain amount of time. Um, I, I've gotten out. On, I've gotten out of one recently. Um, you know, over the past, I think let's just say a couple of months. I've had just you know since June, I've had a general anxiety. Um, just on the daily, every time waking up, just just feeling anxious and everything I do I feel like am I doing should I be doing something different um even this right it's just you know <laughs> but I do it just to keep that routine and I feel like that's that's the net that's a net benefit um but yeah even with that I said I've never I don't think I've had a depressive episode but um I do understand I could feel like I can understand what you know just at least anecdotally uh that you know there's a lot of sad people in this country um, for more reasons than uh, for more reasons than you think. So anyway, this is uh, by Aris Rusinos, uh, unheard colonist via unheard. So let's jump in. Anyone with experience of depression will recognize the approaching symptoms. A numbed blackness of feeling or pangs of melancholy nostalgia for a lost contentment now possible to, impossible to imagine. Right, that's where I'm at. That's where, I've, no, that's where I haven't been at. Sorry. I haven't been at that point where it's impossible to imagine. I've I've always believed in whatever episode I'm I'm at, you know, just mentally. If I'm in a you know bad spot, I'm I'm I know I'm gonna get out of it. I I just know I'll get out of it. That's all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, impossible to imagine. I don't think I've had that. A black cloud of effectless lethargy uh, drains life of purpose, making any exertion of effort impossible. This torpor, uh, this sense of inability to arrest fate, dominates pre-20th century descriptions of melancholy, the pre-medicalized ancestor of our modern depression. As the writer Philip Pullman puts it in his 2005 introduction to the anatomy of melancholy, Robert Burton's sonorous and digressive 17th century masterwork, quote, those readers who have some experience of the disorder of the mind, we now call depression, will know that the opposite of that dire state is not happiness but energy, unquote. By this definition, we can say the British state is, if not depressed, consumed by melancholy. Doom is sensed lying on the horizon, but the exertion of will necessary to avert it is no longer seen as possible or even desirable. The British state lies in bed, staring at the ceiling, waiting for death. It cannot build houses, it cannot build railways, it cannot dig a hole in the ground and fill it with water. It cannot fix schools that are falling down. The simplest task is too difficult. And anyway, why even bother? There are always reasons to be found for why any exertion is pointless. Why helplessness is sensible policy. No wonder, like children of a depressed parent, young Britons now yearn to flee this oppressive atmosphere of home 
Yet Burton's text, reassured for its 400th anniversary, reminds us that we have been here before. Anatomy is most often read today as a pre-modern self-help book, yet it contains within it rarely discussed as astute reading of the nation's political dysfunction that uncannily echoes the present. Quote, kingdoms, provinces and political bodies, with a CK on the political, uh, political bodies uh, are subject in like manner to this disease, says Burton, with the body politic exhibiting the same symptoms of what later writers would term the English malady, 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 M-A-L-A-D-Y, malady, (laughs) malady. For where, you quote, you shall see many discontents, common grievances, complaints, poverty, dot, dot, dot. Cities decayed, base and poor towns, dot, dot, dot. The people squalid, ugly, uncivil. That kingdom, that country, must needs be discontent. Melancholy hath a sick body and had need to be reformed. Unquote. I am so terrible, just old English. Um, I just, I don't know, just really throws me off. <laughs> It's really jarring because I feel like I feel like I'm pretty I'm pretty ahead on speech more than most, right? On average, I'm I'm better than the average person when it comes to speech and uh, having direct forms of speech and a unique way of doing speech. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm a little bit more evolved than most, um, but I'm soon going to get over that. Um, going to get behind that um in you know probably decades to come where i can't be asked to learn uh what a certain instead of uh great or you know how we say fire it is uh they're gonna use a different word i'm just gonna be like oh, no, just, I'm just, i'll stick with fire <laughs> everyone knows fire you know what i mean just everyone knows fire in the same way people knew awesome back in the 80s it's funny how it works anyway where was i at what was i talking about this for oh yeah old english anyway continue off with the article fuck that was a bad tangent Burton's diagnosis is distressingly apt for modern Britain. According to ONS statistics, around one in six British adults suffered moderate to severe symptoms of depression last autumn, while 17% of British adults are tackling are taking antidepressants. But among those aged between 16 and 19, uh, 16 to 29, sorry, depression rates reached 28% for those under 24, uh, un- up to 46%. Depression and anxiety are now the greatest drivers of long-term unemployment. And suicide is the single most common cause of death in young British men. Whether the psychic wounds of post-modernity or social media, uh, the most obvious cause is material. The insecurity built into Britain's faltering economic model. Renters suffer depression at twi- twice the rate of homeowners, while dwindling savings and growing debt strongly correspond with increased rates of mental distress and homelessness is on the rise. The body politic and personal health are in- intertwined, Brain's economic dysfunction is making people depressed and deteriorating mental health is weighing down productivity. But how to reform such an unhappy policy? Uh, polity? Polity? Polity. Don't know what polity, the new word. As historian William Mueller sto- uh, noted in his forgotten 1952 book on Burton as a political theorist, quote, a distressed state and a diseased individual macrocosm and microcosm can look to similar cu- uh, cures, unquote. Byrne regarded the economic instability of England as one of the principal causes of the melancholy of its de- of his day. So, quote, the emphasis on economic reform runs throughout Burton's utopia, underlining his contention that one effective antidote to England's melancholy lay in economic advance, unquote. 
Mueller st- situ- situates Burton in a social context not so different from Mars, where, as he puts it, the replacement of the stable economic regime of the agricultural order by the birth of modern capitalism led to unstable employment in industrial and, de- and commercial labour markets, which fluctuated with world conditions. International squabbles would deprive English industry of its foreign markets while an influx of foreign capital with wildly uneven domestic distribution quote, caused an inflation of land values, rents and commodities which affected not only the unemployed but also the employed whose wages did not rise com- uh, commensur- commensurately with prices. God, that, was a, that was a lump of a word. Like a 7th century Yimby, comparing Yimby, comparing the prosperous and orderly cities of the near continent with our own urban wastelands, Byrne contrasted, quote, those rich United Provinces of Holland, Zealand, uh, and Co, I think, over against us, those neat cities and populous towns, with our cities thin, and those vile, poor, and ugly to behold in respect of theirs, our trays decayed, our beneficial use of transportation wholly neglected, unquote. Leveling up advocate of his day, but deplored him, deplored that amongst our towns, there is only London that bears the face of a city, and yet in my sl- slender judgment, defective in many things. The rest, some few expect, some few expected, are a mean estate, ruinous most part, poor and full of beggars, by reason of their decayed trades, neglected or bad policy, idleness of their inhabitants. As in any provincial town today, or even London's depressing main shopping th- thoroughfare, the nation's melancholy was written in the dismal vista of its streets. Why did England suffer this sad torpor? I need to know what that torpor word is. I've never heard that. Fundamentally, the question was one of, quote, ill government, which proceeds from unskillful, slothful, griping, covetous, unjust, rash, or tyrannizing magistrates, not able to, not able or unfit to manage such offices, unquote. These are ringing so thick, it's absurd right now. An immediately recognisable modern sentiment in rolling 17th century prose. Like modern day attempts at reform, Thatcher to trust, their flailing attempts to cure the malady, malady had only worsened it. So that, quote, the state was like a sick body, which had lately taken physic, with a CK, and weakened so much by purging that nothing was left but melancholy, unquote. They did. I, I, got, I must admit, they did write very poetically in their acad- academia back in the day. I tell you, so it's very, <coughs> it's very, it's very, uh, it's very poetic. Anyway, but England's sad state uh, derived more from more than just inept politicians. Melancholic, a melancholic himself, who wrote to both cure and wallow in his own unhappiness. Burton was wearied of what we would today call the discourse, the vast continuation of. New paradoxes, opinions, schisms, heresies, heresies, controversies in philosophy, religion, uh, which distracted from good governance. As historians of melancholia note, the Calvinist milieu in which Burton wrote was a, quote, suspicious and inquisitorial society constantly on the watch to spy out the sins of others and to suppress all deviations from the true way, unquote. No doubt the modern reader will empathise. But an advocate of few laws, but those of severely kept, Burton condemned the accretion, 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 a c c r e t i o n, accretion, accretion. I think so. I think it's accretion. Of lig- there's so many new words in this article. It's crazy. I'm, 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 
Monday today, uh, of legalistic intrigue and self-promoting lawyers, which then as now hampers strong executive government. Quote, they will make they will make more work uh, for themselves and that body politic disease, which was otherwise sound. Instead, as, Ob- as Mueller observes, politically, he would have a highly centralized state ruled by a wise and kindly monarch, a sort of philosopher king. Socially, Byrne proposed a proto-welfare state for the deserving poor and enforced labor for the willfully idle. Byrne proposed to ban costly offensive wars while maintaining a strong navy and army for national defense. Economically, Byrne was a mercantilist who believed that the route to English prosperity and thus happiness was in a favorable balance of trade with a strong export economy and secure and well-paid employment for English workers. Quote, Industry is a lodestone to draw all good things. That alone makes countries flourish, seeks populace, and were forced by reason of much manure, 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 why manure, uh, which necessarily follows a barren soil to be fertile, I guess that's what he meant, as, uh, and good as sheep mend a bad pasture. Unquote, I, I, I was completely lost by that. <laughs> I was completely lost after manure, I must admit. China's rise and panicked reactive counter tendency towards industrial policy almost everywhere in the West, but listless Britain makes its position until recently. Uh, considered quaintly archaic, seems strictly relevant. Torn between affection for the loss and stable social order, feudalism, and desire for economic growth and prosperity derived from well-planned industry and rapidly expanded cities, it is possible to reburton as the antecedent, damn man these words, antecedent of modern political tendencies. I'm going to save all these words. I'm going to copy and paste them somewhere in the note. These are crazy. A sort of post-liberal before liberalism had been invented. This interpretation of Byrne as a dissident political and economic theorist with lessons for today is not as quick. I, I, I never remember how to say this. Quixotic? Quixotic? With an X in there? Quixotic? I think it's that. Um, as it may first appear. I never actually know, learned what it was. Uh, modern historians of both melancholy and depression have long placed both unhappy conditions in political and economic context, notably the German sociologist Wolf Lepinez, uh, who, as the philosopher Jennifer Radden observes, argues that, quote, melancholy, or at least an enervating nostalgia and ennui, has been the fate of the whole whole classes of people made idle by social, political and economic arrangements, unquote. Oi, God, this speech is crazy. For the historian Matthew Bell, melancholia... Uh, quote, the spectral absence of meaningful politics, unquote, finds the expression of the phenomenon of retreatism, whose adherents are not rebels, they do not uh, attempt to disrupt or undo society, nor are they outsiders who set themselves beyond social norms. Retreaters draw, withdraw from society while remaining within it. If they form a silent and disengaged opposition. Such a position surely describes the viewpoint of British voters, hostile to the dysfunctions of the Westminster system. While increasingly certain it is so re- resistant to reform, there is no point in voting. Why, says Melancholy's seductive inner voice, even bother? Freud credited the depressive with, quote, a, keen eye of, key, a keener eye for truth, unquote, and which British, and which British voter today surveying the options permitted him by Westminster would not feel melancholic. Yeah, need not be this way. Quote, our land is fertile, we may uh, we may not deny, full of all good things. 
And why doth it not then abound with cities as well as Italy, France, Germany, the Low Countries? Ask Burton. Because their policy hath been otherwise, and we are not so thrifty, circumspect, industrious, idleness is the malice genus, evil genius, of our nation. His closing advice to shake off the enervating, enervating, damn, that E and ER just really jumps on me, Uh, comes comes at me just with a with a knife just swinging, uh, enervating grip of melancholy, to not be not idle uh, has become famous as a self-help axiom. It is also a political doctrine. It was no good for Burton himself or for the England of his day. He died, perhaps by his own hand, in 1640, two years before the nation plunged itself into civil war. Uh, but perhaps it is not yet too late for Britain. Do may yet be averted, the torpor defeated, if only the effort is finally made, the bonds of destruction can still perhaps be shaken off through vigorous reformist exertion. It is difficult, perhaps, viewing the revolving carousel of non-entities returning to Parliament this week, to believe that the cloud will never ever lift, but it is not yet too late. But reminds us for, quote, hope refresheth. Yep, I said it, hope refresheth. Refresh, Seth. Refresheth. Sorry, refresh, eth. Refresh eth, refresheth. Fucking hell! Is that trip? Is that? Am I stupid that I'm tripping up on that? As much as misery, depressive fucking hell. Hard beginnings have many times and prosperous events, and that may happen at last, which never was yet. I was really expecting another thing there just to fuck me off, but thank Christ there wasn't. Happy days. Um, yeah, really interesting article. Um, just the just the parallels of fucking absurd um that's just that's, that's crazy how history is just repeating itself once again and it's i can't i can't believe it um i i'm always i'm always so aware of that kind of thing if you know just that's how i develop most of my just attitude towards things like you know just this is history repeating itself you know for a lot of ills and i'm just like okay history is clearly repeating itself if that happens so go that way you know what i mean that's how that's a very easy compass for me to just use and to to direct myself where i want to point myself morally and ethically um but yeah britain don't have that man britain's depression shit i get it i get it like that was that was really fucking spot on like honestly honestly most, one of the most spot on articles i've ever i've read uh, i've read this year Okay, let's get into film. This is an interesting one. It's an interesting little uh, just uh, story to tell, I guess, um, as the strikes continue. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's I've, I've always found that found the golden age of Hollywood very fascinating uh, because I feel like it's probably rarely docu- rarely talked about. Sorry for the plane if you hear it. Um, rarely documented or talked about, or at least I just don't dig deep enough, um, and that's fine because I'm not trying to, you know, th- these these things have a marginal interest for me it's not something i want to like you know read a, and uh you know i'd read i'd, li- I'd listen to an audiobook on it but um just specific stories like these are very fascinating to me so this is uh, via chris yogost uh, via the hollywood rapport it's called the long shadow of antitrust targets from hollywood's golden age 
When the Writers Guild of America released its August 17 report on the new gatekeepers, naming Disney, Netflix and Amazon, it took aim at anti-competitive practices, consolidation in Hollywood, and called for additional oversight for streaming platforms that are allegedly stifling creativity. All of this has roots in the negated Paramount decrees from 1948. As U.S. Circuit Court Judge Annalisa Torres argued in ending the decrees in 2020, when the 1948 rules were put in place, there were not multiple avenues of distribution like we have today via home video, internet, television. The issues of clearances, exclusivity licensing for films raised in the 1948 ruling already occurs on stream platforms. Quote, there also are many other movie distribution platforms like television, the internet, and DVDs that did not exist in the 1930s and 40s, wrote Torres in decision. Given these significant changes in the market, there is less danger that block booking licensing agreement would create a barrier to entry that would foreclose independent movie distributors from sufficient access to the market, unquote. When the Paramount decrees came down from on high in 1948, movie studios enjoyed immense control over their product and were faced with a decision of divorcement between one of the three major industry arms, production, distribution, exhibition. What came to be law in 1948 was initiated over a decade earlier in 1936, when William Benham of the Attorney General's office began sniffing around Hollywood. Studios cooperated with the government's research as they had benefited from President Roosevelt's National Recovery Act, finding numerous complaints from independent producers and exhibitors. The Attorney General's office took the findings to the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover uh, put more agents on the case, adding to the seriousness of the situation when an 89-page memo was submitted to the Justice Department. Hollywood felt no need to worry, given the industry's pro-Roosevelt stance. With the effects of the Great Depression still lingering in 1938, President Roosevelt leaned into an anti-monopoly mindset. FDR appointed Thurmond Arnold, Arnold, sorry, hey Arnold, a former mayor of Laramie, Wyoming, and professor of law at Yale, to head the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. After conferring with the president, the Paramount case was submitted to the Southern District District Court of New York in July. The offences were cited as follows. 1. Monopoly of Exhibition in first-run metropolitan theatres. 2. Nationwide Monopoly of Exhibition by producer-exhibitor defendants. Uh, 3. Monopoly of Production. 4. Trade practices imposed upon independent exhibitors. 5. Benefits, favours and advantages extended by the defendants to each other. A little note for anybody at the Hollywood Reporter. Could you please just, just, just number them down? You know, on the each, give them, the, give them their own line. You know what I mean? Just, just putting them, one after the other within the sentence structure is just, it's horrible. That's horrible. Just, just make some space. Just create some space. Give them some, give them some breathing room there. As antitrust discussion rippled through the industry in 1938, Los LA Times editor Edwin Shallot noted that studio bosses were not worried because movies provided a public good. However, one major issue raised was the exchanging of players, directors and other talent that was essential to major studio operations. If one studio wanted to get Catherine Hepburn for a film, they would need to loan an A-lister of their own. Such deals for top talent were mostly relegated to the top studios. Something one could argue created an atmosphere that stifled competition from industry newcomers. Harry Warner wrote to trusted FDR administrator Harry Hopkins in 1939, arguing that forcing studios to divest their chains 
would her export trade and add risk for investing in larger budget quality films? By comparison, the Writers Guild West report in August argues that studio control creates an atmosphere of less quality. Recent years have found critics raising concern over the lack of originality in Hollywood. Oh, how the tables turn. Uh, in 1940, New York Times billed Hollywood as the unhappy land of make-believe. As the industry as industry insiders noted, they growing concerned that the antitrust movement was gaining momentum. It didn't help that Joseph Schnick and Joseph Moskowitz of 20th Century Fox were indicted on charges of income tax fraud, conspiracy and perjury, adding fuel to the fire for anyone looking to indict Hollywood on legal violations. Uh, Jack Warner followed up a meeting with FDR to thank the president for tasking the Department of Commerce with a structural study of Hollywood and arbitration that Warner felt would help the producer exhibitor relations in the future. As box office attendance was nearing its peak after World War II, one of President Harry Truman's uh, campaign promises was to arm the Federal Trade Commission with enough ammunition to go on a trust-busting tour of the United States. It wasn't just the film industry, everything from candy to sugar to steel and rubber uh, was targeted. The monopoly charges facing production were dropped by 1945, but the divorcement requirements stayed with Justice Department suggestion divestment in exhibition. Even as late as 1946, some legal authorities, uh, such as New York Judge Augustus Hand, was who was part of a New York Southern District Court hearing uh, on the government's antitrust case against Hollywood, thought that forcing theatre divestment from studios was an, quote, extremely drastic remedy that this court is unlikely to grant, unquote. However, however unlikely, the studios continued to fight with countless suits. In 1947 alone, the major studios paid out, uh, let's say, $1.3 in, uh, in legal fees to fight the antitrust cases. The carefree attitude towards the US government's interests in Hollywood trade practices waned as other issues reared up. For example, weekly movie attendance in 1940 was $80 million, but also been towards $60 million in 1950. Federal Judge William Hawley Atwell, he's got some British ass names, uh, spoke up on antitrust issues in a statement published in uh, uh, the March 11th, 1948 issue of the Hollywood Reporter, uh, contending that the, quote, the monopoly uh, statutes, yeah, statues, statues, yeah, statues, uh, were originally intended for the good of the people, not the amusement of people seen in picture shows. Well, a federal judge since 1923 also pointed to a target beyond the top producers, the stars themselves, who reap the major profits. When the government needs money, mused Atwell, we can't call upon them for taxes. The focus today, amidst a summer of labour strikes, is a lofty, is lofty studio CEO salaries. A lot of connections here um, to in history uh, with these cycles I'm picking all of a sudden. Uh, referring to post-war, uh, oh God, it's actually a through line. Oh my gosh. I honestly, okay, random, just bit of uh, deeper, deep in my mind of how I plan these shows. Sometimes um, I don't actually subconscious, I don't actively, um, you know, look for a through line in the articles I pick. But I just clocked one in this in in these this episode in some fashion. Maybe not for the first article, but definitely for the rest of them. We're just there's connections. It's just connections between now and the past. And I feel like this and the previous article and the next article is really going to nail that home. That's that's just a, I did not mean to do that, but it's very fascinating. I'll just clock that for myself. Anyway, where was I at? Salaries, yes, yeah, CEO salaries. Uh, 
Referring to post-war Hollywood's grim problems, uh, the New York Times in 1948 cited the perfect storm of issues facing the industry, including, quote, soaring costs, declining revenue from foreign markets, the antitrust action, and the threat of television. In addition, domestic profits uh, declined 15 uh, to 25, 15, between 15 and 25 percent, I guess, uh, from pre-war levels. Studios cut their production numbers in half. The antitrust problem raised understandable questions about competition in the industry where, quote, major studios are feeding its product into its own theatre chains, unquote. Today, big streamers uh, take advantage of a similar pipeline controlling products from Greenlight to living room flat screens. The Paramount decision that altered Hollywood business uh, for generations was handed down from the U.S. Supreme Court on May 3rd, 1948 by Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. The statement argued that monopoly of exhibition is apparent. It isn't necessary to prove intent of monopoly. Industry has been described as a mature oligopoly. Also, Sherman Antitrust Act violations were seen with the destruction and or prevention of competition. In addition, any theatre will be subject to an antitrust investigation. The the primary recommendation was that studios rid themselves of their theatre operations. RKO, sorry for the plane, and Paramount were the first to comply, while Lowe's, MGM, Warner Brothers and Fox continued to file injunctions into February 1949. The federal court mandated the last three to divest their theatre chains. The Supreme Court was quite confident that at least some of these acquisitions by exhibitor defendants were the products of the unlawful practices which the defendants have inflicted on the industry, unquote. Studio ties to theatre chains were a clear problem. The decree, decree continues to the extent that these acquisitions were the fruits of monopolistic practices or restraints of trade. They should be divested and no permission to buy out the other owner should be given a defendant, unquote. Full monopoly of exhibition was not proven as major studios only controlled about 17% of the theatres around the country. When looking at larger cities, over 100,000 residents, the court found sufficient competition between independent and major studio venues. In smaller cities, 50,000 to 100,000, majors owned about 60% of the venues, and in small towns with less than 25,000, the majors controlled all theatres. While the court found was that while there wasn't a monopoly, there was an environment with stifled competition. It's been said that the most creative people in Hollywood are in the accounting departments. While the MPAA president, Eric Johnston, uh, continued to maintain that the film business was still solid, he was willfully ignoring the significant ticket sales from Hollywood's peak in 1946 and the precipitate uh, decline in the following years. Some venues saw an attendance decline as much as 25%. 1948 also saw a 5% drop in box office gross, and a 20% drop in rentals. The numbers are from a 1949 Fortune magazine essay that could have been written today titled Movies, End of an Era? Johnson contended... Great great fucking title. Movies, End of an Era? That's a, that's a documentary title if, if anyone that needs it. Jeez, I don't know what the... I, I guess the story would be this, but yeah, so, yeah, you could definitely make a documentary with that name. Johnston uh, contended that we shouldn't compare 1946, a wartime peak when people flocked to movies for escape, to 1948 when society was returning uh, to some form of normal with new entertainment, uh, entertainment comp- competition. Similarly, we saw streaming boom during the pandemic over the last year, 
uh, saw major box office successes, reminding us not to count our theatrical exhibition. In 1949, Sam Goldwyn, Dean of the Independent Producers, was quoted in Fortune as saying that, quote, times have changed, but Hollywood hasn't. The industry has run dry of ideas, dot, dot, dot. A few good pictures don't make a summer bust the monopoly, unquote. Fortune also discussed the relationship between showman and audience, where movies were once made for the populace to quench the thirst of the audience. After some time, the player-audience interaction was abandoned for the recipe with ingredients. Echoing Sam Goldwyn, the same could also be said today of the oversaturated tentpole market where formulaic cash cows were traded for quality. Maximising the audience minimised invention, stated Fortune in 1949. People may have changed their tastes in legend since the war. An era in the movie world certainly ended there and the decline in the box office may reflect it. Today, a new frontier of antitrust deliberation and creativity suppression is upon us. The Writers Guild raise understandable concerns about the future of what is often referred to as content creation. Ugh. Cringe. There's a great video by Patrick H. Willems um, on his uh, YouTube uh, about the word content. Fucking good. Like One of my favourite videos this year. Uh, a review of Art Reliant Only on expanding market share. The success of Barbie and Oppenheimer have shown us that non-tentpole creative can still prevail. The question remains of what type of material studios and streamers will support uh, once the strikes are settled. The subsequent decades after the Paramount decree saw a rise in independent production and an increase in risk-taking that arguably culminated in the vaunted New Hollywood era. In the 21st century, New Hollywood resurgence could be upon us if the right lessons are taken from the Barbenheimer summer. Yeah, I don't know why you, why you finished off with the Barbenheimer summer. I found that a bit odd there. Yeah, I mean, you know, antitrust is obviously the big uh, big thing from it. But um, again, man, just connections. Just the connections between now and then is so... It's, it's just crazy, right? Uh, it's just it's just super crazy, but... Um, you know, I've been I've been trying to I've been trying to think about you know a lot about um, just where the whole thing's going, not just in the US but everywhere. And uh, you know, I feel like you know, the likes of you know South Korea. I feel like you know from a glance, I don't I don't know their you know statistics or anything, but creatively they seem healthy, right? Considering the amount of worldwide booms they've had over the past few years. Um, Africa is definitely getting up there now. They're they're getting a leg up in some fashion, and are creating good stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, I feel like the UK is lugging a bit. I feel like the US needs a complete just a complete burn house down kind of situation, and I like that for the UK as well. That's just me. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's interesting just thinking about the lessons from previous and. Um, and how to apply it to now. I get. I, I'm really, honestly, I really didn't figure out that through line until I just talked about it. But damn, man, yeah, connections, man, connections is what I need right now. And when it comes to that, it's a great knowledge tool when you find connections between things and oh, just just you double you you literally double your knowledge um, just by making that connection between things. It's it's amazing. It's best feeling.
We're finishing off uh, with the life uh, topic. This is a, another another publication I haven't uh, been on before uh, or, or covered uh, on the show before. But uh, this is by Curbed, via Curbed. Um, it's part of New York Magazine, but you know, Curbed um, by Joshua Needleman with E L Man instead, not Needle Needleman. Uh, why subway surfers find it so hard to quit. I didn't know people were still subway surfing in in New York. I didn't realize that was still a thing. I I just, again, the connection, it makes me think of like 70s, 80s graffiti culture in New York. Um, but anyway, didn't know it was a thing. Who knew? Let's continue. Let's, let's begin, actually. On a steamy July afternoon, Michael knelt beside a makeshift memorial tucked near the wall at 33rd Street, Rawson Street, uh, subway station. Next to an empty Calypso lemonade bottle, a bouquet of flowers and a Jamaican flag handkerchief. He arranged a smattering of tea candles to spell Jev, J-U-V. That was what he and his friends called Javon Fraser, a 14-year-old teen he knew from surfing the subways. It had been a month since Fraser fell to his death while riding the top of the 7 train. I told everybody before Jev died, I don't want to find out who's next, says Michael, who declined to share his last name. And we found out who's next. He stared at the memorial. I'm very grateful I cut this shit out, as he spoke, he kept tugging on the skin of his throat. Like many, the 19-year-old began subway surfing in his mid-teens. Most surfers climb to the top of the trains and lie down, kneel or stand while the cars are moving, even if they are going as fast as 15 miles an hour. Some surfers even sprint. Others stand on ledges of the cars at the back of the train. Many also record and share their surfs online. By the beginning of 2022, the videos got, began going viral. In New York, subway surfing has been around since at least the 1980s. I knew it was, I was thinking 70s, maybe, but no, 80s is where, where, where it cracked on. The new generation of twe- teens is drawn in by the rush of seeing the reactions on TikTok and Instagram. Some also begin after playing the mobile game Subway Surfers, which simulates the experience. The MTA, which tracks the instances of people riding outside trains, it does not separately count surfers, saw a noticeable spike in 2021. This year, the total number of people riding outside the trains in the first six months of 2023 has far outnumbered the 2019 and 2020 totals at 455. Last year still holds the record of 565 for the same time period. The rise in numbers has also meant more deaths. Fraser was the fourth teen to die surfing in New York in 2023. There were two last year. Michael quit surfing last December when he woke up to the news that another friend, 15-year-old Kavon Wooden, had died surfing that morning. Most of his close friends also stopped. After Wooden's death, they briefly changed the name of their group chat to We Didn't Die. That's really depressing. We didn't die. Mostly out of a sense of relief. Over the past eight months, he he's lost Wooden, Fraser, and another friend, Zachary Nazario, a 15-year-old who died in February surfing a train near the Williamsburg Bridge. Michael now tells everyone who's doing it to stop, but he knows his one-man campaign is limited. Those, co- those caught subway surfing by the NYPD are usually charged with reckless endangerment. But that doesn't deter Losu, a 16-year-old surfer from Queens. Three of his friends have been arrested for surfing, and another two have died, but, quote, I just feel free doing it, unquote. He admitted he once snapped his, own, his ankle when he fell onto the gangway between cars. His mother also confronted him after she saw one of his viral videos, but I, I always tell her I know what I'm doing, she, he says. Fascinating. Afaru, a 14-year-old boy from Queens, 14, bruv, began surfing when he saw a video of it on his TikTok for, for you page. 
but briefly stopped when his parents begged him. After about a month, he started back up. I couldn't. I could quit any time I want. He says it's not. It's it's not an addiction. He also admits running on top feels like you're in a real life movie. Michael agrees. It's a form of expression. It's a form of art. He says it's also an outlet for kids who don't have many other options. No one says one day that they're going to just get on top of a train. Michael says everybody's going through a lot of shit. I don't know what. It, I don't know what. But it's enough for them to start doing this. He said he started surfing to escape what he called issues at home. By the time he was 16, he was diagnosed with anxiety, major depressive disorder, ADHD, and post-traumatic stress disorder, and has attempted suicide. He has been admitted to three psychological hospitals, two residential programs, and, quote, I forget how many, but too many outpatient centres. Unquote. But none of that, uh, none of the treatments worked. Going through that system so many times, and you know it's broken, and you know it's not going to do anything for you. Michael says you just start to look at other options. In high school, he began urban exploring or sneaking on into abandoned buildings and tunnels and onto rooftops with a group of friends. He first surfed the seven train in the summer of 2021. As the train started to move, the operator of an incoming train rolled down his window and started to yell at Michael. It was too late for him to stop the train, he says. Then I see cops on the platform, so you got multiple people and radios calling it in. I just had a lot of adrenaline in me. No one caught him, and Michael was hooked. I knew I was I wanted to keep doing this. It was something that just brought me joy. He surfed multiple times per week. He fell once onto the tracks, but wasn't seriously hurt, and continued surfing that day. In April, the MTA had issued a memo to train crews reminding them to look for people riding outside the trains. As I rode the 7 train back from Fraser's Memorial with Michael, an automated message played over the speakers. It is illegal and very dangerous to ride or walk between train cars. Families have asked city officials and companies to do more. Mayor Adams, Eric Adams, has requested social media companies to remove videos of kids surfing, and TikTok culled many of the videos that went viral last year. According to its community guidelines, the platform does not allow the promotion of criminal activities that may harm people, animals, or property. One popular serving video is still up, but now it comes with a warning. Participating in this activity could result in you or others getting hurt. Some servers on Instagram have made their accounts private instead. Stop worrying about followers, family, and friends are going to be hurt forever. Nazario's mother, Norma, said in an interview with Mayor Eric Adams that he posted online, but even those who quit may find it hard to resist surfing just one more time. One of Michael's friends, a 16-year-old boy from Queens, who asked to be identified as Rivens, said he stopped in January after his parents picked him up from the NYPD precinct for a third time. But he made an exception in early June when smoke from the Canadian wildfires turned the sky orange. He said it was hard to breathe at the top of the train, and he got a nosebleed afterward. But a video of that surf got almost 6 million views on TikTok. Before his original account was banned for posting surfing videos, his post regularly blew up online, I had like 100k followers, he says proudly. These days, Michael keeps himself busy so he won't be tempted to surf. He goes to school, he works, he has a side hustle. He keeps his eyes on the surfing scene, but only on social media. One afternoon in July, he took the seven trainers to Jackson Heights to get birria tacos. On the way back, a younger version of himself flashed before his eyes. A handful of kids surfing on top of a train. Michael was furious. Get the fuck down, he yelled. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's crazy, man. That's really crazy. Like, I just, I genuinely didn't know it was like a thing that just uh, constantly. Uh, 
I didn't realize it was coming back. I didn't realize it was coming back. I found that absolutely outstanding and crazy to think about. And uh, you know, I said in the description of the show notes um, that um, I find subway surfing a fascinating concept, but I wouldn't ever do it myself. But I just, I would love to just depict it somehow. Um, yeah, just, just, it, just in some fashion um, with one of my ideas. I'd, I'd just love to do something like that um, and write something about that. It about the culture at least as well because I find it just supremely fascinating and with that said we'll leave it there ladies and gentlemen from the F- Fifth End Podcast Network I'm a child and it's been what's good intro music has been too much by vanilla thanks to your music good to use and thanks to a friend of mine Nappy High who recently got signed big ups big ups to Nappy High for getting signed um, his album Menace which recently came out on Bandcamp is off Bandcamp but will now be on streaming platforms very soon so please give that a spin uh, whenever that goes down. Just be sure follow Nappy High uh, wherever you wherever you spin. Um, get searching. Uh, but yeah, big ups to him. And uh, yeah, charismatic for the interlude. Uh, find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I'm sure I was trying to do the same. But until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.